Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the final word Christmas story time 117, the episode that we thought that might come sometime during the Boxing Day Test match. Well, we're slightly more organised than that, so we are going to be able to bring you a weekend edition around the same time that our Christmas Eve chat uh, with Simon Kadich is in the feed, so you can really indulge in the final word and all that we do across the festive period. Hello, Jeff, just back from Brisbane at last. Yes, we have landed. We are here. We're uh, we're equipped with tales. We're not equipped with a lot of time, but we do have um, some stories that we're going to squeeze into what time we have in order to squeeze it into your Christmas weekend before everyone goes on holiday, including our marvellous editor, DC. <laughs> okay, so Jeff, uh, we, we will get straight into it today. As you say, we're a bit short on time, just the nature of uh, the squeeze around Christmas and all the rest of it. So your first cab off the rank, the number is 600AUD, not a Julio. It is a nerd pledge from Eric Pritchard, and he has a clue for you, which I will read out now. Relates to the inaugural member of a very exclusive club. Until very recently, there were only three. Now there are four. But you won't find this number in the official stats because it didn't occur in a first-class game, and you won't find it recorded anywhere. It relates to a perhaps apocryphal set of figures at a lower level before briefly making it to the big time. If you can figure out who this person is from this plus the original first in an exclusive club of four, and then do some Googling, you'll find a reference to her feet. If she were English... She would meet most of the DOB criteria, although it seems a little harsh to say so. Wow, that's a that's a lot from Eric. Uh, Jeff, uh, have fun with it. Yes, a fair bit to go on. So we know that we're looking for an early era women's player because they have to be the first person to do something. And the number was six zero zero. I mean, you and I 
exchanged a few thoughts on this. I mean, originally we were thinking like, is there someone who in some at some level of cricket took six wickets in and over? Yeah. I doubt it. I mean, in terms of being an exclusive club, it's probably happened a bunch of times at, at very low-level cricket, but it's never happened anywhere beyond club level. In any sort of serious cricket, in in first class and above, four and four balls is still the most. That's a double hat-trick for our English listeners. So there's, um, never, been, there's never been a triple hat-trick. Never, no one's taken five wickets no. in a row in first class cricket. No. The most is five right. in an over, but that's five and six balls, and, and that was Pat Pocock. In that famous spell, which ends up being yeah. whatever it is, nine in in you know, seven in nine balls or whatever it ends up being in, in the Pat Pocock thing. So can't be that. And then I thought I was really onto this because I thought six sixes in an over in international cricket has only happened four times and one of them was yep. very recent. There's a bunch of club level, there's a bunch of first class level, there's Garfield Sobers and all the rest of it. But Herschel Gibbs first in the World Cup in 07, Yuvraj Singh against Stuart Broad, Kyron Pollard did it last year against Sri Lanka. And then a USA cricketer, Jaskaran Malhotra, did it recently-ish within right. the last 12 months against Papua New Guinea. So I thought, all right, exclusive club, four of those, there's got to be a woman in the early days who maybe apocryphally hit six sixes in and over in some sort of <laughs> game where the scorecard wasn't recorded. And this is this is where I went looking for it. And then I thought maybe it was a match against another, another country, but it wasn't recorded as first-class cricket if it was against a not very good country, something like that. The clue says if she were English, she would meet the criteria for a dusty old bastard. So she's not English. So I know it's got to be early. It's got to be therefore Australia or New Zealand because the other countries don't start playing women's test cricket until the 70s next best when the West Indies come in. So I'm looking through every early Australian or New Zealand women's cricketer who played three or fewer matches. That was kind of my cutoff for whether you'd count as a DOB or not. Everyone up until World War II couldn't get this to fit with anyone. So there were other clues involving that it could be 48, it could be 11. I found Marge Bishop, who bowled 48 balls in Test cricket. Helen Miller made 11 runs. Peg Taylor and the wonderfully named Fernie Blade were the 11th caps for Australia and New Zealand. Nell McClarty took 11 wickets and made 66 runs for Australia. None of this, none of it worked. I couldn't find any newspaper reports or anything about anybody hitting six sixes in women's cricket at this time. And bear in mind that would be pretty unlikely for that to happen given the style of play at the time. And then I went back through the clue one more time and I realised that that he says set of figures at one point. It, you won't find this number in the official stats. It relates to a perhaps apocryphal set of figures at a lower level. So I've got to be looking for a bowler. So I go deeper into the 1950s. I'm looking at who's played one or two test matches and Faith Thomas jumps out played as Faith Coulthard, also the inaugural member of a club, I realise at this point, because she's the first Indigenous player to represent Australia, certainly in, in cricket and I think in any team sport, to wear an Australian badge going out on the field. And, I mean, she's got a fascinating story that, that has been told pretty well in the last few years. Uh, member of the Stolen Generations, taken away from her family, brought up in a mission, became a travelling nurse driving around South Australia, all sorts of rural areas in the car, getting out and helping people in, in remote areas, got into hockey and into cricket through the nursing organisations and the story goes that uh, through that period of time she was the fastest bowler in South Australia. Gets drafted into the test team for Melbourne in 1958 
And because she's not keen on travelling, she doesn't want to go on a tour to England or a tour to New Zealand because she doesn't want to get on a ship. So she only plays that one test match. That's where it starts and that's where it ends. And she could qualify as a DOB, except she's so well known that she can't. She's not mm. dusty at all. Mm. She's, she's a very shiny individual that people know a lot about. Almost a thanks for coming in that test match. Doesn't get to bowl in the first innings because England get bowled out for 35. Not required to bat in the second innings because Australia declares. So she gets to face once, makes three runs and gets to bowl six overs and that's it. That's her test match. But she is the first in a club of Indigenous players to play for Australia and that club later expands to include Jason Gillespie and then Dan Christian and then Ash Gardner. And I wonder if, I wonder if this pledge came in before Scott Boland got into things. Or maybe we're only right. talking test cricket because Dan Christian didn't play test cricket. Yep. So I think at this point the recent entrant that was mentioned by Eric has got to be Scott Bowler. It's got to be Scott, it's yeah. Be- it, it'll, it, that, what you said first will be one of these. It'll be Dan Christian because mm. he didn't play test cricket. He'll be the old one out there. Yep. Yeah, played the, the short forms but not test cricket. So that makes four... Faith is still going, 89 years old, kind of an iconoclast, gets interviewed once in a while and says things that people don't want her to say and <laughs> is not shy about voicing an opinion about whatever. It doesn't, seem, doesn't feel the need to toe the party line. And she does like to tell a bunch of tales and sometimes those tales get a bit tall. And one of those tales, as I found out, and there's no scorecard to verify this, is that once she was playing for the nurses against the Adelaide Teachers College and took six for none. Uh, what is our number? Six zero zero, and I am very confident that we found ourselves a right answer with that one for Eric Pritchard. There it is. Very good. Uh, all those bits of the clue were worth it, and they all came together nicely. Thank you, Eric. A nice start to the show, Jeff. Uh, my turn. Peter Lewis, uh, long-time ah. friend of the show and enemy uh, captain, who'll be captaining the Newtown Browns against the final word eleven on uh, January 26 as we try to find a good way to use a shit day. So if you want to get involved in that game, it's in Sydney at Birchgrove Oval. Uh, listeners, welcome to come down, hang out, maybe even join the 11. Drop us a line. Let us know if you want to play or you want to watch. Peter Lewis has sent through $3.76. No clue. Open field. Uh, it's over to you. Yeah, with this one, uh, a man who will become a DOB in the future. Not quite yet, though, for he is still most prominent uh, in uh, the cricket that we cover. Paul Blocker-Wilson, surely him, because he was test cap 3-7-6. But he's a great story in his own right. I remember when he was on the way through playing domestic cricket, a lot was made of the fact that he packed up as an accountant in Newcastle and drove across the country to the Cricket Academy in Adelaide and he you know, paid his own way to get in there kind of thing after being overlooked a, a couple of times in the early 90s. So that was always used as a, as a story which reflected how badly the guy wanted it and, and it pays off. So he's in the South Australian team by late 93 Four years on from that, in the summer of 97, 98, he gets to play some one-day cricket against New Zealand and South Africa. Played 11 matches through that stretch of time and pretty useful numbers, 13 wickets at, at 34. In 11 games, I had a look at the wickets that he took. Gets Cairns out twice, Klusner out twice, Callis out twice, Astle, Kirsten, like good good wickets out of those 13 that he that he did take. I remember also in that period, a lot was made of him doing something slightly different to the run-of-the-mill Aussie quick. He was... Um, bowling from very, very wide of the crease. So wide, in fact, that I have a recollection that he was called for a back foot no ball. Now, I might be imagining that, but I'm pretty sure Blocker Wilson in a one-day international during that tri-series was called for for breaking the side crease, which is 
pretty rare. Anyway, all of that was enough to get him on the tour of India in 1998. And it wasn't his first class numbers that were doing the heavy lifting there. So in that season, he took 13 wickets at 39 with the red ball for the Redbacks and in the previous year, it was more impressive, 18 at 25, but he wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the batters of that era who had to make thousands of runs in Australia and in England to have any chance of breaking in. He, he broke in kind of on the back of what he did as a white ball cricketer. And I think partly that reputation of him being hardworking, industrious, bustling to the crease, big guy who might be suitable for England conditions. And there's that famous tour game where Australia get absolutely smashed up by Sachin Tendulkar for India A, I think it was, and blockers there taking three for 98. So it kind of it holds up that by the time they reached the second test match, having been beaten soundly in the first, that they turned to the big South Australian at Eden Gardens. I mean, what a great place to make your test debut walking out there in Calcutta. Anyway, it doesn't go well. Australia are all out for 233. Blocker faces two balls, none not out. Then he opens the bowling with Casper. Uh, he bowls 12 overs, none for 50, uh, and then he breaks down and then... That's that. Unfortunately, India go on to wallop mm. 633 for five, declared everybody tucked in, including Muhammad Azruddin, who made about 170-odd not out. I remember he brought up his century with a towering straight six off possibly mm. Gavin Robertson, I think. But, yeah. What, they, what they are were, the odds on that? Well, yes, indeed. Uh, we, we come to a few sports betting enthusiasts in a later answer of mine, Jeff, I'll, I'll have you know. But, yeah, I, I remember it was so hot. It was really hot in Australia as well that summer during that, it was, uh, dare I say, an Indian summer. In February when the series was being played, it was like 40 every day. Um, my brother and I were watching every ball, eating these icy poles that had one layer inside the other, which you would kind of dibble through. I remember that. I also oh, yeah. um, remember were this. They, were they like the rocket? Were they called yeah. a rocket or something? That, that, that sounds about right, yeah. And I also yeah. remember um, on the day of the first test match, it started on a Friday, excitedly saying to this guy in the bus who's a bit older than me, probably in his 20s, oh, how good is this Australia playing India? Like, you know, we're the best team in the world. He's like, mate, you're dreaming. India will fucking hammer Australia in India. He was right and I was wrong. They did. Um, <laughs> but as it turns out, that was the last performance that Blocker had for Australia in, in any format. He didn't play one day cricket again and it's just the one test in baggy green, three. 376, which nobody can take away. But you fast forward to 2000, 2001. And again, I, I refer to my brother Ben here. We used to watch, we, we moved to Warrnambool and we used to watch this television show on, on Optus Vision, yep. which the reason we got Optus Cricket or C7, whatever it was called, is because in the bush in Warrnambool, all of the pay television was run through Ozstar. So we got to get the best of both worlds, if you like. And they had a lot of Shield content. You might remember, Jeff, they, ran, they would run a Shield game live each week. And anyway, Kerry O'Keefe was on their magazine show and I can't remember for the life of me what it was called, but his panellist was Gavin Robertson. He was the guy who would be there with Kerry and there was a host as well. Might've been Tony Squires. I know that was the fat, wasn't it? That, that, um, yeah, Kerry did. The the fat on on the ABC and the, the, back page or whatever it was. That's but right. I think I remember this coming up when we were in Warrnambool. I think you were harking back to this. Yeah. That, that, this, that, this exact program. It sounds like the sort of thing I would hark back on because, yeah, they're good memories. My Ben and I have sort of really invested in our cricket. And one of the things that we still joke about to this day is that Kerry at the start of the 2000-2001 summer made a bold prediction. His bold prediction was as follows, that Paul Wilson, and I wish this clip existed somewhere, that Paul Wilson would, at the end of that summer, be driving around the Wacker in the back of the car. In other words, that he would be the international cricketer of the year, Paul Blocker Wilson. He made this bold <laughs> call that he would from nowhere, from outside the Australian team, get that chance. Of course, he didn't 
play again and that that um he who never would drive around uh, on the wacker in a in a car a la mm. Kirtley Ambrose from from some it years was, earlier. Andy Andy Bickle came in during that summer, didn't he? Two thousand and one. He did, he did, he came did in yeah. The MCG against the Windies. Well Brett Lee started the summer and then there was an injury. I can't remember who got injured there, but by mm. the end of it you're right, Andy Bickle was getting test cricket and yeah, certainly wasn't Paul Wilson. And and look, he had a good return that year, nineteen at twenty one in first class cricket and he, that was his best in first class full stop. He never took mm. more than nineteen in the season took 16 wickets in the white ball stuff as well a couple of years later he moved to western australia for a few quieter seasons before retiring in 2004 but you know great story that he's raced through the umpiring ranks in recent seasons with cricket australia's backing they've made a point of trying to promote former international cricketers to to get out there and umpire at the highest level and, and so he has his first test match as an umpire was in 2019, uh, Bangladesh, Afghanistan. He's done seven of them since, and he's done 36 one-day internationals. Did the Women's World Cup final in 2022, earlier this year, Jeff, in, in Christchurch, and he did a women's test last year as well. He's one of the four Australian umpires on the ICC panel. So not the elite panel, that's the one that Paul Rifle mm-hmm. and Rod Tucker sit on, but the level below that. So um, there's more to be told in, in the Paul Blocker-Wilson story than his cap, which was 376 for Peter Lewis. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that's right with him. It just... He strikes me as the, the kind of guy who would have enjoyed Blocker's work uh, back in the 90s and 2000s. And two in a row that are that, that technically you could try to claim as Dusty Old Bastards, but are absolutely not. Because exactly. I don't think you can be an international umpire and still be a DAB. You know, you've, <laughs> you've, still, you've still been, continued to be involved at the top level of cricket and he'll do that for years to come as well. So there's no strict rules exactly about the criteria of of dustiness but dustiness has got to also mean that we've never heard of you as well as meaning that you didn't play a lot of test cricket yeah even um, with our broadened interpretation yeah you're you're right blocker will never be a dob because by the time he finishes umpiring career and and i think that's partly due to the drs deliberations that we kind of get to know the the umpire's voices and their mannerisms Mm. and the way they go through the third umpire process and so on and thus we perhaps know blocker wilson better than we would have known some umpires from yesteryear yeah, and you know any sort of long term umpire becomes a pseudo celebrity in their own right. Sure. You know, the 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 Rudy Kurtzman dismissal method, or the you know the 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 show that was Billy Bowden for many years, and, and big dick, so little dick, and so forth. Mm, Big Dick and Little Bit Dick, the two, uh, uh, Kettlebury and Illingworth. I saw Big Dick a couple of times during the week because he's. Um booth for doing third umpire work at Brisbane was not far from our commentary position. And here's some colour for you. When performing as the third umpire, Big Dick sits there with his shirt hanging out, doesn't tuck oh, yeah. his shirt into his trousers when, and why would you? Um, he'd have mm-hmm. his feet up just watching the front foot and occasionally being called upon by the central umpires. But he's very mm-hmm. good at it, as he was during that India-Pakistan World Cup game at the MCG. He was on the TV tools that night and did a great job. Big Dick. The uh, next number comes in from the Reverend Dan Nichols, who I hear uh, whispers around town is taking his Quokkas team down to Pombonite in March, hopefully, mm. to play a game against the Pombonite side. Great. Sounds like that's coming together. Um, if you didn't see see or hear our Pombonite show, um, go and listen to it, or better yet, go to YouTube and watch Cam Fink's beautiful video work on that um, episode from our Western Victorian tour a couple of months ago. He has sent through $1.94, the Reverend. So there was a clue, uh, and it runs as follows. A modest taboo, you might say there's a dent on it. A motley crew, a captain, a selector, an English quick in it. More than half internationals, the stuff of dreams and the start of a legend. Now, I, I jumped on this initially, Jeff, and kind of threw it over to you. 
I was thinking an English quick could be Alan Mullally, given that he'd mm-hmm. started, you know, the, in the Australian system, but he's back in WA where he's playing grade cricket. Then I thought it could be to do with Chris Rogers' first class taboo. Mullally played in that in English quick. The dent reference here could have been Mark Butcher's helmet, Matthew Nicholson smashing him in the helmet, second ball, and mm-hmm. blood coming out of the out of the grill and um, what the front of the out of front of the helmet past the grill and Nicholson going on to take seven for seventy seven and getting himself into the test team. There was a selector in that side, Gus Fraser. Um, he played and did the job for England and and more than half of the WA team were internationals. Mm-hmm. Hussey, Campbell, Kadich, Langer, Rogers, and the aforementioned Nicholson. So that was all right, but yep. buggered if I know how I was going to tie that together with 194. So I, I kind of assumed that I was I was reaching for it. I was snatching for it. It wasn't quite right. Well, I liked your idea and I thought, what if it's about the other end of Alan Mullally's career when he made his first class debut for uh. Western Australia in 1989? Um that's Ian Botham's last Shield match as well for Queensland, which is kind of funny. Kim Hughes still kicking around in that team. Is he? Clash of eras. Really? Yeah. Kim yeah. Hughes is playing in the Shield in 1989? 89, 90, yeah. Wow. I'm really surprised yeah. to hear that, given it's like seven years after handing over the Australian captaincy, five years since his last Rebel Tour. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. Please carry on. Yep. So, so I started looking for other players who debuted in matches that Alan Mullally played for Western <laughs> Australia. <laughs> And this is what I spent a lot of today doing. Okay. There are some names that are not going to be it. It's not going to be uh, Devaka Vasu, who debuted in first-class cricket in that that weird Kellis Kemplast trophy that we talked about that got played for a couple yep. of times between WA and Tamil Nadu. Decent all-rounder, 35 with the bat, 25 with the ball, uh, played 70-odd first-class <laughs> games. Don't know what happened to Devaka Vasu. Could, could have gone on to bigger and better things. Um, there are some names that are unlikely to to be involved. Paul Carew for South Australia, Richard Stobo for New South Wales, uh, Kenneth Lilly, spelt the wrong way to be related to that one, who played a couple of games for WA, Darren Ramshaw, Chris Mack, not not sort of the big names at the top of the list, but, you know, they, they did their bit and made first-class debuts all in that season against WA when Alan Mullally was playing. Uh, Damien Fleming also did in 89-90, but he took six for 37 in his first innings, so that does not fit with a modest debut. I, I'm, like so, I'm, the... so, I'm so chuffed that I know one of my answers later in story time today relates to a debut against WA in 1989-90. Just want to flag that now. Uh-huh. As you're running okay. through this, I'm very excited. I have an idea of as, as to which that might be, in fact. <laughs> I, I, I really want to know what happens in the Fleming game because the Vicks draw needing 22 runs to win on day four. But looking at the number of overs bowled in the match, it's only 72 a day on average. So there must have been some rain involved. But, right. you know, how, how did they come to get that close on day four and not go for it? Um, Dino gave it a bit of a crack. Michael Bevan might be that debut that you're thinking <laughs> of. Uh, batted at seven, made 114, pushed the first innings out long enough that they saved the match, even though they had to follow on after that. So that doesn't count as a modest debut either. Um, modest debuts could include Michael Kasprovich who uh, made a duck, did not bat, and got none for in both innings. Just like his test um, he, he he was He's one of yeah. the rare fast bowlers to get two nunfers on, on test as he did in 1996. Huh. And continue to get opportunities as well, even rarer. Brendan Julian's debut, didn't get to bowl in either innings, uh, batted at six, made six not out when he got declared on and made one in the second innings. That's a modest debut. But nothing that fits with, with the, the 194. I mean, it, so much of this almost fits because they're playing against the Tassie side with Dirk Wellham, 
Gavin Robertson, Greg Campbell, Dave Gilbert. They're all internationals. Rocket Rod Tucker, umpiring. <laughs> Count him as an international. The WA side, Valletta, uh, Graham Wood, Brendan yep. Julian, Tim Zora, Tom Hogan, Chris Matthews, Alan Mullally, more than half internationals. But the 194 doesn't, doesn't fit. It doesn't go. So at this point, I, I went back to the Reverend. I said, what's going on? Help me out. He said, think current players. Think final word fave. Well, Glenn Maxwell debuted for Victoria in January and February 2010 across three formats. Ah. T20's first class 50 over cricket. Uh, thanks for coming in the T20. Didn't get to bat, didn't get to bowl. I uh, got to bat once in the Shield game, made a quick 38 in a draw, took a couple of wickets. Ford Ranger Cup, that's where we're looking. 50 overs, maybe it was 40 overs. Who remembers? Maybe it was a split innings for Split innings, yeah. I, I, reckon, I reckon that is... 2010-2011, I'm almost certain that was when we were doing 25-25-25-25. Good format. Yeah, I've, I've, always liked, I've always liked the 25 splits. I thought that had mm-hmm. a fair bit to it. Anyway, that was the format had they potential. used in the, in the David Boone testimonial game at the MCG oh, many years ago. Very good. Uh, was that the one featuring Plucker Duck? Or? That was Dino's. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> P. Duck. <on laughs> okay, so Maxi Bowl's okay, actually, but everyone else, well, most of the others get whacked. Tasmania make 304. They're batting first in a final at the MCG as well. So he's debuting in the final. Tim Payne makes a ton. Who, who remembered that mm. um, in, in that final? Ed Cowan made 61 at a strike rate of 110. That was that year when Ed Cowan's 50 over cricket became really good for a time domestically. I'm pretty sure that might be the final, uh, where, yeah, my, the final. where my mate Mark Divin played for Tasmania as well as the all-rounder. Uh-huh. Div, who went on to be our captain at Hampstead a couple of years on from that as the club pro, he made um, he made five centuries and took over 50 wickets for the club playing in the first team that year. And we and whenever I go back there, people still sing and talk about Div. I think you've met him, Jeff, when you were in Tassie with me a few years ago. Anyway, um, I think that was the 10-11 <laughs> Ford Ranger Cup final as well. Well, was that Victorian side more than half international players? Chris Rogers, Brad Hodge, Aaron Finch, Andrew McDonald, Matthew Wade, John Hastings, that's six already yep. before you get to Maxwell and Bryce McGain and Darren Pattinson, <laughs> English quick. Finch was a captain. The Rev said there was a captain involved. Bailey was the selector, said there was a selector involved. All of this ticks the boxes. Maxi made only nine runs in the run chase. That's modest. Caught off the bowling of Jared Denton. There may be a dent on it, said the Reverend <laughs> in his clue. The Victorians were all out for 194. Very gig on debut in the final, although the next season after playing only six more games, Maxi makes a 19-ball 50, the fastest in Australian domestic history, and is away the start, as the Reverend said, of a legend. Very good. Thank you, Rev. And yes, that 19 ball 50 we featured in our um, Glenn Maxwell, This Is Your Life, our live show about mm-hmm. him all those years ago. Great commentary from Damien Fleming, if I recall correctly. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Brilliant. It's got plenty about me 
as usual. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. Next up, we have Tom Panos. Um, I'm not sure if this is Tom Brackets Panos or Panos is Tom's uh, pseudonym. I, I think Tom goes under the name of Panos uh, right, on, okay. on, online, but but sometimes okay. is also Tom. So you can That's figure fine. that out. Okay, so 910 is the number in the AUD, and the clue is not his yep. preferred format. So I've taken this one on, Jeff. I originally was looking at Dan Lawrence because his highest score in Test Cricket's 91, mostly just to kind mm. of acknowledge that how unlucky is that bloke? He, he feel It feel like he's the forgotten man of baseball. He looks born to be a baseballer, but he's kind mm-hmm. of found himself making runs at the wrong time of the English psychodrama last year in the Windies, well, earlier this year when no one wanted a thing to do with them and now he's out of the team. But mm. instead... Born to do it. Born to play in that team and make quick runs and bowl weird spin and exactly. look good doing it. Exactly. He'll be back at some point, I'm sure. But, um, and I've teed this up already, but Michael Bevan, highest test score of 91, not his preferred oh. format. I think yeah. this is where we're going here. So Maybe big his there. preferred format, but not the format that others preferred him in. All I want to do now is mount a case for why Michael Bevan was treated abysmally. Um, okay. So I am here for this. <laughs> yeah, because, boy, you know, he said it's not his preferred format. His numbers certainly yeah. suggest that it is. His shield and numbers we looked are off. At, we looked at his, his test career only a few shows ago. That's right. There was a lot in there. So I want to leave the test career to one side, with the exception of the first tour of Pakistan. So... You mentioned before players that debuted against WA in 89-90. Bevan was one of those. Century on debut for South Australia. As a teenager, you know, he's he's so good at the academy. They're like, you need to play state mm. cricket right now where you are. You, you can't wait another second. So kind of similar to Blocker Wilson that we've got this running mm-hmm. theme of the academy today. And, yeah, he was a prodigy uh, as Rod Marsh was, was running the academy in those early days. And that was the first of 12 first-class teams that Bevan played for. You wouldn't get that these days, would you? That's more a T20 rap sheet, you know, when you factor in all of the different types of sides that Bevan played for in Australia and England. Mm. Anyway, six games that season for the Sackers. There was the ton on Dubu. Uh, and by the way, that was after the 431 run stand that we've talked about on Storytime before with Jeff Marsh making his 355 and, and Mike Valletta um, with him for much mm. of that when they yeah, added 431 to start the match. So, you know, all that scoreboard pressure that Bevan was up against when they were batting in their first inning. So it's all, all worth noting there. He's immediately away, goes back to his native New South Wales. Then his first year as a proper New South Wales cricketer in 1990-91, hits five tonnes at age 20, averages 66. I mean, this is outstanding stuff early in his career. In 92-93, averages 52. In 93-94, a huge year, 1,312 runs at 77 with five more centuries. So to say he'd earned his spot for that 94 tour of Pakistan is a massive understatement. He's like absolutely ready for the step up. Alan Border's retirement opens up a vacancy in the middle order. That's an entire career for a Shield player now to make like 15, 16, 1700s. All by the age of like 23, right? So... Yeah, when he, when he top scores on debut at Karachi, making 82, that's perfectly in keeping. Uh, they lose that test match by a wicket, by the way. But, yeah, he laid the foundation and gave them a chance to be there on the final day. And, you know, on reflection, unlucky not to be a member of the century on debut club. Anyway, on to Royal Pindi. He makes 70 there uh, and then finishes the series with what became his highest test score at Lahore, 91. So for the second time in the series, his debut series, top scoring. So, you know, no century, but what an impressive start away from home. Now, again, let's press fast forward beyond the test career. As you say, we've told that story recently. But domestic cricket, all through that stretch of time, it's one dominant summer after another. And he only gets better after being 
left out of the test team, kind of similar to the Simon Kadich narrative arc on, on this front. So 2000, 2001, the summer I was referring to before with Blocker. Let's start there. Five centuries that year for Sussex, where he averages 75, then averages 51 in 2000, 2001, before they're picking the squad for India. Now, I've I, I referred already to that show that Kerry O'Keefe was on. He was arguing to his blue in the face that they needed to take Michael Bevan as the third spin option, given he was absolutely dominating shield cricket. And any perception that he was poor against the short ball, which which I would challenge, by the way, you're not making these types of runs in domestic cricket in Australia if you can't handle the short ball. What do you think all those shield attacks were doing to him week in, week mm. out? They were bumping him. And, and yeah. yes, he got out to the short ball a number of times in test cricket, but... I would argue that that was a technique thing rather than him being sort of worried about it. And you can improve against it, as Steve Waugh showed through his long and productive career. Anyway, that 2000-2001 series includes a century against WA at the Wacker when it's genuinely quick, kind of bolstering that point. But somehow he's overlooked. And almost to make a point, the next home summer, 2001-2002, averages 72 in the Shield, 76 the year after that, 101 the year after that in 2003-2004. Does he get a look in for India and Sri Lanka in 2004? Nah. 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 He's gone 72, 76, 101 in consecutive seasons. He's only in his early 30s, so way before his sell-by date. Still playing. Still prominent in the one-day international team all through oh, this. Oh, yeah. I was, I was about to say, they keep picking him in that team almost to make a point that, yes, you're good enough to do this, but not good enough to do the other thing. But, but in 04, he doesn't go to Sri Lanka. He doesn't go to India for shame. Then to Tassie for one final push, 2004, 2005. And, Jeff, it won't surprise you to learn that he broke the Shield record for the state, 1,464 runs at 98. So he's gone 72, 76, 101, 98 in consecutive seasons. couple of years on from that, he finally does retire from first-class cricket with 68 centuries for seemingly a white ball specialist, an average, a first-class average of 57. 57. 57. 68 tonnes, 57 average, and not even as was said in the clue from Tom Panos, not even his best format, so to speak. An absolute oh, disgrace. You've got to bang the door down, mate. You've got to bang the door down. You've got to go back to the shield. Disgrace. Mate. Michael oh. Bevan, made in heaven, doesn't get a chance to play for Australia after 1998, and his highest score somehow in that form of the game remains 91. Short ball bullshit for shame. Concur. Concur. As, uh, as Leonardo DiCaprio says in Catch Me If You Can... I concur, Doctor. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Uh, we've got a double header, actually a triple header coming up. Uh, we've kind of buggered this up because um, okay. I've answered both both of them. So uh, oh. this is three people, but I reckon this is two answers. Oh, but, okay. I, I, um, I, I thought I'd got involved on that. I must have um, forgotten. Oh, yuck. That's, that's all right. I, th- I think you can get pretty involved uh, in the second one. Okay. Um, because I, th- I think you're going to know some things about that once, once I get going. But... It's triple head. It comes in from VJ, comes in from Joseph Brookshaw, and it comes in from Jake Sheedy. It is 355. In VJ's case, this was in Euros. Yep. With a clue that says this historic series, historic over champion left hander. And I was puzzled, Adam. I was like, how do I make 355 fit with an over? Because it's not like it can be three for 55 or 35 for five. Right. It can't be a scoreline. How does it fit when it's an over? Uh, and a historic over at that, I thought, is it, is it the over when Dennis Lilly takes his 355th and final wicket? But 
No, that was Safra's now as he was a right-hander, not a champion left-hander. Was a champion right-hander, but not for batting. Someone who made 355 in a series, the only people who've done that, Jack Hobbs, Herbert Sutcliffe, yep. Bob Simpson, Insamamal Haq, all right-handers. And the only thing I could come up with for an over was, is it the end of a spell that ends up as a 3.55 economy rate? Now, this gets mathematically interesting okay. because it's really difficult to have an economy rate of 3.55 across a spell because you have to have at least 120 deliveries in a spell before you can average 3.55 across it. So you can't do it in a one-day international because you can only bowl up to 10 overs or maybe up to 12 overs in the old days. Right. Nobody's ever averaged – nobody's had an economy rate of 3.55 in one-day history because they mathematically can't do it. So you can't do it in T20 cricket either. You can do it in test cricket, but the only way you can do it is if you bowl 20 overs and concede 71 runs or if you bowl 15 eight-ball overs – and concede 71 <laughs> runs because that's still 120. Or something that has happened once, if you bowl 40 overs and concede twice as many runs, which is 142. Okay. So, though, so every, every spell bar one is something for 71 that's had an economy rate of 3.55. Historic match, James Anderson, second innings of the Melbourne Ashes test of 2010 when they're bowling out the Australians to win by an innings, one for 71, 3.55 and over. The one wicket that he does get is Steve Smith, champion right-hander, not left-hander. Yep. Uh, Michael Holding, one for 71 in the first bowling innings for his side of the fifth test of the Blackwash mm -hmm. series when they're, the West Indies are 4-0 up against England. They're going into the fifth test. They want to make sure they win all of them. He only gets one wicket, but it is an important one. It comes after a century opening stand. It's Graham Gooch, champion right-hander, not champion left-hander. The Gooch. Michael Holding gets him twice in the match for 51 in each innings, interestingly. But, yes, <laughs> taint one thing or the other. Um, Bishan Beatty, India's big win at the MCG in 1977 when they're on the comeback trail. They're 2-0 down. They get back to 2-all. They lose the decider, one of the great series. But his wickets are Peter Tui and Tony Mann. I don't think champion left-hander really fits the bill for either of those. Here's one that could work, though. Sri Lanka in South Africa in 2019. You know the story. You've heard it on Storytime before. They're chasing 304 Sri Lanka in the fourth innings. There's no way they're going to do it in South Africa because they've never played well in South Africa and they're in South Africa. And they're up against Dale Stain, Vernon Philander, Kaisa Rabada, Duane Olafia. And it's Keshav Maharaj, the spinner, doing most of the damage. So at the point where they need 98 to win, they've got five wickets in hand. And then Maharaj comes through. Good review when he gets a decision turned down, gets a Dhananjaya LBW on the sweep. Saranga Lakmal edges the next ball to slip. Olivia takes a wicket and then Maharaj gets another one. Kasan Rajita LBW. So now they need 78 to win with one wicket in hand. And that's when Kusal Pereira takes on... Maharaj. The next ball he faces from him goes for six. Next over, reverse sweeps a four. Takes three runs off the next, five runs off the next, three runs off the next, and he's farming the strike beautifully. He's getting a single right at the end of the over, making sure that his number 11 doesn't have to face, and so they take Maharaj out of the attack. He's the one, he's got three of the last four wickets, but he gets dragged. They get the quicks back on. Pereira's still farming the strike like old McDonald, doing a beautiful job, and he takes down the quicks. Hits a six off Stain, a six off Rabada, another six off Stain, keeps going, 
and gets them there before Ben Stokes did it for one of the most ridiculous victories. 153 not out, nine wickets down, exactly the same as Lara, a champion left-hander. And I think that means you can say Kusal Pereira in that moment was also a champion left-hander because he's a left-hander. And who was he smashing around? A champion left-hander in Keshav Maharaj, <laughs> who took three for 71 but couldn't make it four for 71, going at 3.55 and over. That is my guess. That is probably wrong, but I like the answer for Vijay's 3.55. I like that it works. I like that it works. And I, I have a feeling Vijay in the past might have sent us uh, clues that relate to the Sri Lankan side. Just got a hunch on that, that maybe we've had a mm-hmm. Vijay before. That So therefore... Having a link through to Kusal Pereira and his genius that day in Durban would, would stand to reason. So that's the first of 355. Mm-hmm. Then you've gone and double-headed the other two. So just a reminder, this is Joseph Brookshaw and Jake Sheedy. And, Jeff, you have answered this how? Explain this to me. Well, okay. So Joseph changed his pledge from pounds to Aussie dollars. And so that seems to be significant to me. And Jake sent through a clue that definitely makes me confident about this answer. He says, my new number 355 is an easy one, but I thought if it was clear, you could go big with confidence. It's a reference to my daughter's namesake because she, in her infant stage, listens to bucket loads of the pod. Well, because Jake is on the Discord and has been posting up pictures of his daughter, I happen to know that her name is Lily. What a great name. Lily, three fifty-five. Girls' names are so much better. If you, if if we have a girl, <laughs> I've got a hundred names to choose from. Lily would be one of them. Yep. If we have a boy, we're fucked. There are no good boys' mm. names. There, I mean, there are there are some good boys' names, but there are nothing that we can agree on. It's an ongoing source of tension. Please, can we have another girl? Sorry, I, I, the floor's back to you. You could name 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 him Clancy after our um, uh, colleague who's left the. The yeah. media tour, uh, you know, Clancy Simon, who's done a, a wonderful job for CA with the video production stuff over the last five years. So, a great tourist. Yep, great tourist. So if if Jake's daughter's name is Lily and his number 355, you know it's the number of test wickets that Dennis Lily took. The <laughs> right? There cannot be anything else. And I reckon Joseph is doing the same thing in going to the AUD. And I think you probably have plenty to say on Dennis Lily. So I'm just going to start it off, Adam, by saying, you know, born in... Perth, a few years after the war, 1949, icon of the 70s and 80s. I think in a lot of ways, Dennis Lilly has the modern fast bowler's career before modern fast bowlers came along in that emerges as a young Tyro, bowls super fast, gets the back back stress fractures, is out for a couple of years, does all the rehab, comes back stronger, has a great peak, and then as a later stage bowler, keeps playing into a a, a more advanced stage than some did while losing pace but gaining skill and becoming, you know, the, the, the cliched wily operator who finds ways to get players out. The whole arc is there, and and so many other players have now mimicked that as they've gone along. Yeah, I, I was going to say exactly that. That the slipstream that Lily finds himself in, well, players after Lily, Richard Hadley and James mm-hmm. Anderson, three guys who started really quick. People forget. I mean, I don't think they forget, but it isn't reflected on as often as it should be that Lily was genuinely fast when he gets his first opportunity in, in 1970, mm-hmm. 71. He's like 22 or something like that at the end of that Ashes series. It's a few years on from that that he 
back breaks in half. I remember there was a book I used to read in primary school, in our primary school library, that documented Dennis Lilly's recovery. And, you know, it was my dad's cricketing hero growing up as well. So dad's told me these stories too, that there was no certainty uh, upon Lilly returning at all because, you know, that kind of injury then could be career ending. But when he does yeah. return, he does so as a as a supreme seamer as opposed to an all-out quick, still quick enough, but he was never going to be the Tyro that he started. And I think that's a, that, that, that says a lot about how skillful he was that he could reinvent himself that way. Well, I've spent a lot of time today watching Dennis Lilly clips on the internet. And, yeah, the early stuff is seriously quick. I mean, he's playing for WA Colts at 18, takes yeah. a five for in that game, of course. By 20, it's 1969, he's in the Shield team. By 21, he makes his test debut at the end of that Ashes series. And by 22, he's bowling against that World 11. We've talked about the eight for 29 that he took before up against Gaviscar, Engineer, Rowan Canai, Zahir Abbas, Clive Lloyd, Carfield Sobers, Tony Gregg, useful top seven. Not test match, not given test status. Nah. I think it was for a while. Yeah, and I think it, I, I have a feeling it had test status for a time, and then they they saw fit to um, yeah. yes tweak a few of those World Eleven games. N- not completely unreasonably either. It's contested space, but you, know, you can form an argument well, either way. He plays four of them, and watching some of the clips back, like the bowling is seriously quick. Like when you know when yeah. he drops short, there's a point when he when he's halfway through that spell, he's bowling with five slips and two leg slips. <laughs> right. Five slips and two leg slips. And he's getting catches both sides of the wicket in that cordon. I mean, he's got like a mid-wicket and a cover and that's it. It's extraordinary. And the other interesting part of this is that because he played four times, you know how the old um, court marsh bold lily is the most common dismissal Mm. in cricket with 95 instances. There are seven more in that World Eleven series of matches. So if they did count as tests, then they would have cracked the right, marsh and lily. Didn't know that. So there's... There's one for you. Yeah, early 73 when the back goes, months in plaster, physio rehab, comes back to test cricket in 74, 75. That's when Jeff Thompson arrives. That's when the magic happens. That's when they burn through a couple of Ashes series and you know, mark themselves as the scariest bowling combination in the world. And then it is interesting how much cricket he misses. You know, skips that England tour in 77 mm. because his back's going again. Couple of years of World Series cricket, gets back into it in the 80s, teams up with Terry Alderman in 1981, goes past Benno's 248 wickets for the Australian record, goes past Lance Gibbs, has all the flare ups. And like just watching him, watching the video back, watching the action, it seems like he's the first really big crowd icon for an Australian crowd where they like him because he's a bit not quite doing things the way you're supposed to do he's a he's he's a he's got a short temper he blows up from time to time they you know people associate with him and when you hear the chant going like maybe that's the first real star cricketer in a way where Bradman was almost Christ-like he was so distant from everybody but Lily is the one that that they felt was theirs yeah all you need to do is listen back to the 1977 centenary test commentary from uh, test match special actually that uh, which i had the great fortune of doing when making calling the shots john arlott's out there calling it for tms and i think it's a simulcast for the abc but anyway the point is is that he reflects on that a number of times so that how loud the crowd is in support of lily willing him on late in the day that kind of thing Again, you know, my dad was there for much of that test match and remembers that as well that he was just um, man for all season stuff and, yeah, loved like no one else at that time. And, you know, the fact that he became the world record holder kind of went to – took him to a whole new level as well.
Right. I think we're out of time. And Adam, you have to go to the dentist. I, so I do. I do. You have no idea how hard of the, You have day. no idea how hard it is to get a dental appointment in London. I've got one. It's in 19 minutes. And if I miss it, I'll never get one ever again. So I'm, I'm going to wish everyone a happy Christmas. And hopefully the chunk that's fallen out of my tooth can be replaced somehow at some point in the future. All right. Good luck with that. Um, and we will sink our repaired teeth into a longer story time next time. But here's here's a little one for your feeds. Merry Christmas and watch out for the uh, Christmas show, which will be dropping just after this. Have a nice weekend. So you know what I meant. I had to go.